Welcome back to Legends, Lore, and Larceny, your favorite show to learn about a bunch of random stuff from a guy who does internet searches. Uh, that's me, Charlie Stone. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, and I also hope you're looking forward to Christmas. I know I am. I am a big holly jolly kind of guy. Uh, I also hope you enjoyed the previous episode, but don't think that's all I have for you. Oh, oh no, there's more. This week's episode is still about Native American monsters, uh, but these are the best ones. These are the things that still haunt people to this day. These are the things which still stalk the woods at night, being caught on trail cams and being immortalized in Reddit compilations on YouTube and in podcasts like this one. Uh, be sure to like the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and heck, <laughs> if you're game, maybe you could you know share the show with your friends and neighbors. I'm sure they would uh, appreciate that. I would too. Uh, and since you know they could learn so much from this awesome show, I bet they'd doubly appreciate it. Uh, one more bit of housekeeping before we get into the show. Uh, every content creator from podcasts to YouTube videos has names for their fans. Uh, Danny Gonzalez has Greg. Curtis Connor has the folks of Curtis Town. Uh, and my favorite podcast, Time Suck with Dan Cummins, has a community of space lizards that help the show through Patreon subscriptions. Uh, don't worry, I'm not asking for any money, but I think I, name, I need a name for you guys. Uh, I think, I'm thinking Legends since it's a part of the show, um, I'll put a survey on the show with a few different options that you can vote on on Spotify. Or, heck, you could let me know via the email I've created just for this show. It is legendslorelarcenypod at gmail.com. That's legendslorelarcenypod at gmail.com. All one word. No spaces, all L's are capitalized, and the P in pod. Uh, so you can send in ideas for future episodes, things you want me to know, or you can tell me how I'm doing. Uh, eventually, I might create a website for the show, but for now, this is the best I can do as far as taking your suggestions and feedback, you know, unless you want to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which would really help me, actually. So maybe consider doing that. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get started with some creepy stuff in the wilderness of North America. As per the last episode, I'll talk about the people who tell the stories about these monsters, the monsters themselves, and stories about these creatures. In this episode, however, there may be some more recent tales to go over. Who knows? Okay, let's start with one that seems a little less serious than the other creatures in this episode. Uh, but first, we need to talk about the people who tell this story, the Cherokee. The Cherokee has, have always been of interest to me since I lived, I have lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee for my entire life, and this city has a lot of Cherokee roots. The Cherokee were one of the largest groups of Native, Native American people, indigenous people, for a long time, and actually came from the Iroquois, uh, who we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, in around 1650, the Cherokee numbered about 22,500 individuals, which is pretty good. I found this pretty interesting. Uh, the Cherokee lived in red and white towns, 
which served different purposes. Uh, red towns were led by war chiefs, and war rituals were conducted there. I don't know why I'm out of breath. Jeez. <sighs> Gotta breathe. Oh, I'm congested. Can you hear that? Oh, lovely. <clears throat> anyway. Red towns were led by war chiefs, and war rituals were conducted there. Uh, white towns were led by peace leaders and offered sanctuary to fugitives and people who had done wrong. Uh, the Cherokee often allied with European settlers to fight other groups of natives or even other settlers. They often allied with the British, as in uh, the French and Indian War in the 1750s and 60s, and even the Revolutionary War against American colonists. Uh, something else cool about the Cherokee is that they were the first, or one of the first, tribes to invent a written language. Thanks to a really smart guy named Sequoia in 1821. Uh, this helped the entire tribe to create a constitution of their own and allowed them to write down their religious traditions, uh, including stories about monsters and stuff. The Cherokee Nation even had their own newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, starting in 1828. This was the first Native American newspaper. Uh, unfortunately for them, gold was found in the hills of Appalachia, specifically near Georgia, uh, where they were, so settlers wanted to buy the land and make the Cherokee move somewhere else. Uh, the Cherokee took their case to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled in their favor. Again, unfortunately... Uh, the government of Georgia and then President Andrew, Dra Andrew Jackson said, no, -uh, uh, and passed the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Uh, <laughs> and not to be like a, like a virtue signaler or over progressive or whatever, but that, that gets me steamed. It, you started the Supreme Court to help you with laws and stuff. So when they pass a verdict, maybe you should... I don't know, respect it, follow it. I don't know. Andrew Jackson wasn't a huge fan of Native Americans, so I guess he didn't feel like he had to do anything to please them or even follow the laws. Um, in 1838, the Trail of Tears was begun, resulting in about 4,000 members of the Cherokee Nation dying en route to their new reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, if you're a math nerd... That's almost a fifth of the Cherokee Nation, which was why the Trail of Tears was such a huge tragedy. Uh, today, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, there are about 730,000 people alive with Cherokee blood scattered around the U.S. and the world. But I have to wonder, how many would that be if a fifth of their entire nation hadn't been wiped out? Uh, also, something... well. Not cool, but something of interest is that the Trail of Tears um, for the Cherokee was actually started in Chattanooga, uh, which is not a great claim to fame. Uh, luckily, Chattanooga also invented moon pies and RC Cola, so maybe those can bounce out. I doubt it. Uh, so that is the Cherokee people, briefly. But uh, what about spooky monsters? Well, I say spooky monsters, but... The moon-eyed people of the Appalachians are really more likely to be little dudes. Uh, the stories passed down through oral tradition and, eventually, the first written Native American language 
tell of another race of people who inhabited the southeastern United States and Appalachia before the Cherokee. Uh, There are structures dating before the Cherokee people moved into the area, like an 885-foot-long wall built between 400 and 500 A.D., um, I think. Uh, Stories kind of differ on that, and maybe historians have it wrong. I doubt it. They're smarter than me. Uh, (laughs) So this wall, it's built seemingly for defensive purposes in the Kohutta mountain range, down in Georgia, but stories of these strange people come from North Carolina, Tennessee, and even all the way up in Ohio as well. The first mention of these mysterious people appearing in history to a white dude was in the early 1800s. The governor of Tennessee was visiting that wall I was talking about in the Fort Mountain State Park and got to talking with a Cherokee chief chief named, I don't like these names, Okotosota. Okotosota. That sounds right. When asked who built the wall, Okotosota said that they had been built by, quote, the white men from across the great water. The moon-eyed people are said to be small, chubby folks with huge blue eyes and pale skin. They were said to hate daylight, so they lived in caves underground and only came out at night, hence the moon-eyed part. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, The first people to find America were the Vikings in the 11th century. So how did little white guys make structures six centuries before that? Well, there's a story that might explain it. Uh, Prince Maddock of Wales, who actually has a longer name, but it's in Welsh, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce any of it because Welsh might be the worst language. Uh, Sitting slightly above Pig Latin in its sexiness and Russian in the letter to sound factor. Um, I'm sorry if I have any Welsh listeners. I, I doubt it, honestly, but if you are a rare person who listens to this podcast and you speak Welsh, maybe consider not. Because uh, <laughs> I try to read Welsh and pronounce it, and it just doesn't make any sense. So make a better language, the Welsh. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. Uh, Prince Maddock is sort of a mythological character in that we don't have much solid proof that Prince Maddock ever came to America, except a Welsh poem describing his life and adventures. Uh, Again, we don't really know if this actually happened, but the British used the poem as quote-unquote proof that the UK landed in America before Spain to clear up some land disputes. I don't know if that actually worked. That seems like a pretty thin defense to me. Uh, If Maddox did come to America, he did it in 1170-ish and landed in Alabama with some other Welsh guys, then traded with the locals, and then, you know, who knows what happened. He may have gone back to the UK with his spoils. He may have stayed in the US with his men. We're not too sure. But Europeans in the southern United States may explain a white race of people here before the Cherokee. I don't know. Uh, You know, I I don't think that an episode of this show would be complete without a little bit of alien talk. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure there have been episodes of the show where I don't talk about aliens, but they they feel few and far between, Um, especially when it comes to weird little creatures. That being said, these little white people could have been aliens, extraterrestrials. 
There are carvings of the so-called moon-eyed people in various museums and heritage sites. And I have to say, they look like the stereotypical image of an alien. Uh, small, with huge heads and big old eyes. Could visitors from another world have taken up residence in North America way before other people? Maybe, but personally, I doubt it. Uh, aliens could explain the big eyes and possibly the light sensitivity, but I'm skeptical. So what happened to these guys? Well, the Cherokee, being fond of war, tried to fight the moon-eyed people, but they wouldn't come out during the day. So the Cherokee attacked them during a bright full moon and drove them east into the Smoky Mountains, where they were never seen again. I know I promised some modern encounters with some Native American creatures, uh, but these aren't really there aren't really any for these guys. There there aren't a lot of stories on Reddit of encountering moon-eyed people. Or if there are, you know, they just don't call them moon-eyed people. Uh just a little fun fact for you here. Um, there have been some tribes in the U.S. with lighter skin whose hair would turn white in their later years. And there have been other tribes who didn't speak a language similar to those around them. It was more like Welsh. So, you know, maybe it isn't aliens. Maybe it, maybe it really was Prince Matic. I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but I think it's funny to think about little Welsh guys running around, living in caves, and fighting the Cherokee. I just, I just think that's cool. Another Cherokee legend is that of the Uktena, the Great Horned Serpent of Appalachia. I'm pretty sure that every civilization with access to a body of water has come up with stories of monsters living in that water. The same goes for Native Americans. For the Cherokee, the Great Horned Serpent was called Uktena. For the Ojibwe, it was just the Great Serpent. To the Cheyenne, it was the Meni. And to the... Passamaquoddy. Passamaquoddy? Yeah, that sounds right. It was Apotemkin. Apotemkin. I think. Screw it. The Uktena was created by the Little Men, who were sort of like Native American goblins. Uh, They were the size of dolls, and they were mostly helpful and knowledgeable about the world and mysticism. Uh, And they also... um, had a lot of medical knowledge. They they helped out with supernatural problems and love healing people of diseases. The story of the Uctena goes that the sun, yeah, the sun, was killing people because whenever they looked up at her, uh, they would squint and scowl while they all gazed up at the moon lovingly. The sun, kind of understandably, got angry and jealous and started burning people and causing them to be sick. Uh, the Cherokee went to the little people for help, and they agreed to help. Uh, their first attempt didn't work because they sent two normal snakes to try and kill the sun, which I imagine would probably have the same effect as a bacteria trying to stop a Sherman tank. Uh, their second attempt involved transforming a dude into a massive horned serpent with a gem on his forehead. While this new snake, Uktena, failed his task of taking out the sun, the rattlesnake found the sun's daughter's house and waited for her to come out of their, her door. Uh, when she did, the rattlesnake sprang and bit the sun's daughter, killing her with its venom. Um, the sun was distraught and went inside the house to mourn, 
but now the world became dark. Uh, after this, there was some stuff about going to the afterlife. For some reason, I kind of tuned out because it just kept on going. Uh, but we're, we're not really here for the little people or uh, the son's um, grieving process. Uh I also think that the little people are different than the moon-eyed people. They might be the same species, maybe. Maybe an offshoot. Maybe they're cousins. Anyway, the Uctena is not specifically looking to kill people. It just kind of comes out of the water it sits in. And if there's a dude there, uh, they're looking for one thing. The gem on the Uctena's forehead grants magical powers if someone can get a hold of it, but it's a tough job. The gem, and therefore the Uctena, can hypnotize people it sees, luring them to the snake instead of running away. If somebody tries to ambush the snake while it's asleep, it's a little less dangerous, but the gem can still hunt the guy's family. Uh, don't ask me how. I have no idea how that works. Uh, but there might be a little bit more about that later. Uh, from what I've been able to tell, I think that there are multiple Uctena, since several sites say they, they live in various bodies of water in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, they're said to have a diamond crest on their foreheads and scales like burning fire. They have rings around their bodies, which are thick as tree trunks, by the way. Big old snake. Uh, they also have spots along their bodies, and their life force resides in the seventh spot from the head, just in case you need to kill one. Uh, the seventh spot is their only weak point. The horns I mentioned a few times are actually like elk horns from the depictions I've seen, which, you know, goes together great with a slimy little snake head. Uh, if you do happen to kill an Uctena, you can take the gem on its head, which will allow you to have miraculous powers, such as great hunting, finding love, calling down rain, and most importantly, the gift of prophecy. The thing isn't all sunshine and rainbows, though. Uh, if you don't slather the gem in blood a couple times a year, it will fly out of the ca cave where you hide it, and it will kill you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you have to keep it wrapped up in a deer skin and hidden in a cave just in case someone tries to steal it or it tries to kill you. Uh, all of the other versions of the Uctena from all over North America are basically the same with very minor variations. Uh, there are also giant water snakes in other parts of the world, like Jormungandr, or the World Serpent in Scandinavia, the Hydra in Greek mythology, and even the Leviathan from Judeo-Christian stories. All right, now we're getting into the truly horrifying Native American legends. We'll move west, out to Arizona, Utah, and the other cowboy states. The people living out west that we're going to talk about are the Navajo. The Navajo Nation consists of about 300,000 people today, and most of them live in New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, like I said. The Navajo language comes from the Apache and is classified as the Athabascan language or a branch of it. The Navajo lived near the Apache, who were a very warlike people during westward expansion, and so were the Navajo, just to you know, a lesser extent. Uh, that fact didn't keep the U.S. military from cracking down on them for the same stuff. Um, the thing I think is the most cool about the history of the Navajo people is their service during World War II. Uh, during Big Two, the military used Navajo people to transmit messages back and forth, but this wasn't really a new idea. Uh, 
During the First World War, the U.S. had used uh, Choctaw people, but the Germans and Japanese sent spies to learn Native American languages, but apparently not Navajo. The Navajo language is super hard to learn if you weren't born into the Navajo Nation, and it isn't written. It's just uh, spoken. Therefore, it was already hard for the enemy to understand what the 400 Navajo code talkers were saying. Uh, but they made it even harder by substituting words for transportation, weapons, and general army stuff with words from their own language. For example, fighter plane became Dahetihi, or hummingbird, and battleship became Loso, whale. I don't know if I said those right. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, trying my best not knowing the language. Uh, these code talkers weren't honored for their service in the war until many years later when the operation was declassified. I know, it's a shocker. The U.S. government didn't want to congratulate someone who didn't look and live like them. Wild. Uh, but to me, the Navajo code talkers are one of the coolest forces of World War II. A very cool subject, which I'll probably try to cover on this show, but I will inevitably bite off more than I can chew. So anyway, skinwalkers. Not a lot is known about the true origins and myth of skinwalkers because the Navajo are the only ones, or one of the only ones, some other tribes have their own versions of skinwalkers, uh, who truly know about them, and they aren't talking. Their hesitance comes from the belief that talking about these creatures is bad luck, and that non-indigenous people who don't, don't need to know about them, which I guess is a fair point. Uh, I did find a little bit, though. According to Shanklin Shadow Productions, an indigenous YouTuber who shares myths, legends, and customs from indigenous history, most of us have the myth of the skinwalker all wrong. The skinwalker is a creature which can shapeshift into different animals for evil purposes. The main things they would change into uh, were creatures found around the Navajo Nation, such as deer, hawks, wildcats, and other desert animals. Uh, the Navajo tradition of changing into animals began with medicine men finding new ways to travel into the mountains in Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico for rituals faster. Uh, while this was fine, since they were, do they were medicine men uh, and they were traveling to do good, uh, the trouble came when other people wanted to move faster for inane or evil purposes. The evil forces in the world offered men, evil men, the ability to change into different animals and dark forms, uh, but they had to do some stuff first. There are several things you have to do to become a skinwalker, and the Navajo Nation don't like discussing them since it might tempt people to join the darkness. All Shan Klin told his audience was that the first step was to kill an immediate loved one, such as a parent, sibling, lover, child, or grandparent. Uh, skinwalkers get their materials for changing into animals by killing the animals themselves and then wrapping themselves in the animal's skins, and that's why so many skinwalkers appear as deer, since they were plentiful and easy to wrap around a human body. Deer skins were, not the actual deer. Uh, skinwalkers approach houses in the desert, but not everyone is defenseless. People with dogs are fine. Dogs are said to be the protectors of the home and can sense evil coming off of the skinwalker as it approaches. Uh, the skinwalker can put dogs to sleep with different concoctions 
and then they're said to hop onto a victim's roof. So people have reported hearing footsteps and rattles coming from the darkness outside, especially on their roofs. Another thing the skinwalkers can do is mimic human speech and even sound like a victim's loved one, or, most creepily, the victim themselves. And I can just say, if I heard my voice screaming for help from the woods, I might just jump straight up to heaven, then and there. That's so incredibly unnerving. Uh, Skinwalkers are out to harm, especially with poisons, since they used to be basic medicine men and healers. They create mixtures from dead bodies, which can harm and kill when blown into a victim's face. Uh, Don't worry, though. There are ways to kill a skinwalker if you're in a bind. If you ever feel like a skinwalker's coming for you, get some arrows or bullets and rub them in white ash. Uh, Many people say that skinwalkers are basically Navajo witches, and while this is kind of true, uh, skinwalkers are much more nuanced than regular witches. Uh, Just ask J.K. Rowling. Uh, She got into some trouble for appropriating stories about skinwalkers uh, for a piece of world-building fiction set in the wizarding world of Harry Potter. I haven't read it, but apparently, you know, she's gotten into more controversies. Uh, The modern notion of skinwalkers has changed drastically from what they used to be. People post videos of animals or people moving or acting strangely and call them skinwalkers, but... You know, this is untrue. Firstly, because I don't really think skinwalkers are real, but also, how could a fully grown human guy squeeze into a cat's skin? Just because your dog or cat is walking on two feet and acting strangely doesn't mean that it's a skinwalker. It does mean that maybe you should, you know, I don't know, throw the whole pet out, get a new one, because that's kind of weird. Um, the other thing people post are videos of roughly human-shaped things coming out of the woods or showing up on dark roads. Now, I don't think these are skinwalkers either, because the lore says that they show up looking like deer and other similar animals, not pale, skinny guys in the wilderness. Uh, Because of these stories and videos about skinwalkers, quote-unquote, these creatures have become some of the most famous pieces of Native American legend in the world right now. If you talk to somebody about skinwalkers, chances are they'll know at least something about these creepy creatures, either in the modern or classical sense. If you know about creepypastas, just visualize the rake. If you don't know about creepypastas, look up the rake and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a pale, lanky thing with growing, glowing eyes and long fingers. Later on in this episode, after The Last Monster, I'll introduce a new segment where I tell you guys scary stories and we'll talk more about the modern skinwalker. Uh, one more thing before we move on. There's an area in Utah named after our favorite shape-shifting animal witch. It's called Skinwalker Ranch, and there have been several unexplained things that have happened over the years to multiple people, starting with the Sherman family who purchased the ranch in the late 90s, specifically 94. Terry Sherman, a man not easily scared by wildlife, walked out of his house one evening when he heard a strange noise. Uh, When he walked into his yard, he saw the biggest wolf he had ever seen, and in turn, it saw him. It stared at him as he ran to get his gun, which he used to shoot the wolf multiple times, but it seemed to just shrug the bullets off like they were nothing. It ran off, but when Terry tried to track it, it it seemed to vanish into the air. 
Weird animals weren't the only things the Shermans had to deal with. They also saw on multiple occasions lights in the sky and what they claimed were UFOs. The ranch has changed hands several times since the Shermans sold it in 1996. Good idea. And everyone who has stayed at the ranch has seen weird things. Mostly of the UFO var- var- mostly of the UFO variety. Sorry. So again, maybe this strange creature from Native American mythology is an alien or aliens who just really love turning into wildlife. Okay. Now it's time for the last creature and one of, well, one of, if not my favorite monster by far. After a quick summary of the people who came up with this legend, the Algonquins of Canada and parts of the northern United States. The Algonquins were widespread back in the day, occupying a lot of eastern Canada, uh, parts of the Great Plains, and the eastern seaboard of America. They quickly forged alliances with the French when they arrived and struck up trade deals for furs and other natural resources. The Algonquin people made up more than 20 different tribes scattered all over North America, and so they were one of the most populous indigenous groups. Of course, this all changed when they were moved somewhere else so that colonists could manifest their destinies. Uh, Most of the Algonquins were in Canada, so they were used to cold and bitter environments, often facing famine and frostbite, so their myths and legends often reflect these natural horrors. One thing Algonquins never resorted to and looked down upon, uh, even in the midst of harsh winters and food scarcity, was cannibalism. Eating another person uh, or a human being was extremely taboo back back in the day, as it is now, so anyone who ate another person was seen as evil, which, you know, I can't disagree with. Uh, Naturally, the evils of the winter and the unthinkable act of cannibalism were combined to make the most fearsome monster to inhabit inhabit the continent of North America, the Wendigo. In several ways, the Wendigo is similar to the Skinwalker. They're both creatures which can mimic human speech to lure and prey and are both the product of human greed or evil. They both hunt and kill people and pictures online are usually interchangeable between the two monsters. I think of them as sort of cousins, one in the southwest, one in the, north, the northeast. Uh, in stories of the Wendigo, it is described as being in unhumanly or inhumanly tall, pale and thin. It has long, sharp talons on its hand and feet, hands and feet, and a mouthful of unorganized but razor-sharp teeth that uses to tear out the vital organs of its victims. It often hides in trees calling out in the voice of a loved one. Here are some quotes from legend, uh, from Algonquin legend. It is a giant with a heart of ice. Sometimes it is thought to be entirely made of ice. Its body is skeletal and deformed with missing lips and toes. Uh, From the Ojibwe people, a subsection of the Algonquin, quote, it was a large creature as tall as a tree with a lipless mouth and jagged teeth. Its breath was a strange hiss, its footprints full of blood, and it ate any man, woman, or child who ventured into its territory. And those were the lucky ones. Sometimes the Wendigo chose to possess a person instead, and then the luckless individual became a Wendigo himself, hunting down those he had once loved and feasting upon their flesh. 
A wendigo is made when someone has to resort to cannibalism, and I said, as I said earlier. When someone eats someone else, the evil spirit of the wendigo possesses the cannibal, and they begin to change. They become this gaunt monster which stalks the desolate woods, always hungry but never able to eat enough. Eventually, they die because of this hunger, but the spirit lives on, searching for a new host. Uh, through the years, when stories of the Wendigo became accessible to Western society, the desire to consume human flesh was named Wendigo psychosis. It's an actual psychological diagnosis. And if you think Wendigos were just characters to scare children, you're only half right. The truth is that a few Algonquins did have to eat their loved ones to get by in the harsh winter environment. In the late 1800s, Alberta, Canada was about to see one of the harshest winters they'd ever seen in years. One family was going to have it especially rough, and that was because of a man named Swift Runner. In 1878, Swift Runner took his family, his wife, their six children, his mother-in-law, and his brother out to the woods to stay in their cabin. Now, Swift Runner was a notorious drunk. People thought that his alcoholism might have started because he sustained an injury that prevented him from providing for his family, but we can't be completely sure. What we do know is that his alcohol's, alcoholism caused him to be fired from his job and kicked out of his tribe. Before this, he was a trapper and a guide, and at over six feet tall, he was a giant to everyone around him. So after the winter... When spring rolled around, Swift Runner appeared at a Catholic mission, claiming that his entire family was dead. Swift Runner looked healthy, though, especially since he claimed that his family had starved to death. After this, Swift Runner would wake from nightmares, screaming and kicking. Legends say that what got authorities to investigate him was Swift Runner trying to lure several children out to the woods with him. Authorities got the giant to lead them to the cabin he had survived the winter in, and they found a scene out of hell. Bones were scattered all around the cabin. Human bones, which someone or something had sucked the marrow out of. They also found a pot full of human fat. Don't ask me how they knew it was human fat. Uh, I don't like to think that they, you know, dipped a little finger in and tasted it. Uh, Swift Runner claimed that he had been possessed by the evil Wendigo spirit and it had made him kill and eat nine people. His case was taken to trial in 1879 and was found guilty after 20 minutes of jury deliberation. He was hanged to death on December 20th, 1879, but his story would far outlive him because of his actions and the creature he might have become during that long, lonely winter. Well, there might be real-life Wendigos, so that means that there are real-life Wendigo hunters, or there used to be anyway. For hundreds of years before settlers found Canada, shamans and medicine men were practicing the exorcisms and executions of suspected Wendigo victims. The most famous of these hunters were Jack Fiddler and his brother Joseph. Jack was said to have killed 18 Wendigos in his life, which I can only assume is an incredible number of Wendigos, having never interacted with one myself. He was basically the Van Helsing of the New World, putting people out of their misery of changing into a monster. In 1907, Jack and Joseph were arrested by the mounted police for the murder of Joseph's daughter-in-law, since she was a suspected Wendigo. While being escorted to trial, Jack escaped into the wilderness for a day, 
and was found dead the next morning. Did he die of exposure, or was he killed by a monster in the wilderness who knew that Jack had killed many of its kind? Joseph was taken to trial and executed, although an official pardon, official pardon, official pardon came three days after his execution. Talk about poor timing. The fiddlers still have descendants living today, but if they're doing Wendigo exorcisms, they're doing them on the down low, since they're very illegal today. Today's media has done the same thing for the Wendigo as it has for the Skinwalker. While traditional Wendigos are gaunt giants with claws and fangs, many sources of media have changed it to differing levels of horror. Uh, Many depictions of the modern Wendigo have large horns like an elk, but this is nowhere in the legends, although the movie Antlers is an excellent Wendigo movie, if, you know, a bit inaccurate. The Wendigo has also been in shows like Supernatural, and it has been introduced in Marvel Comics as a Hulk villain living in the wilds of Canada, where the Jade Giant likes to cool off sometimes. And now, what you've been waiting for, some quote-unquote true encounters with a skinwalker and a Wendigo from this century. Now, take these stories with a grain of salt, since I found one on Reddit and the other on a site called cultnation.com. So they're not exactly reputable, but they're fun either way. I hope you enjoy this new segment. Spooky story time. It had a dog's body, but with human hands and feet. I was spending a month with my cousins at my grandma's house. It was August, and my cousins' ages ranged from 10 to 15, and I was the oldest one, being 15. I was staying with a 10, 13, and 14-year-old. We stayed up telling scary stories often, but one night, a few weeks in, we decided to make a campfire out back. My grandma's house is in a rural suburb. The neighbors aren't too far when you're driving down the road to her house, but in the backyard, it's thick forest with man-made paths through it. Each house is on a hill, so only part of the basement was actually underground. That isn't important until later, though. So we're towards the other side of her yard, in a smallish patch of open land. You couldn't see the neighboring yards from there, and there was probably three quarters a mile to each side of us that belonged to my grandma. It was maybe 11 at night, and we were playing truth or dare after telling scary stories, and my 14-year-old cousin dared me and the 13-year-old to go walk through the paths for 10 minutes or so. I said yes right away, and as I wasn't easily scared and rather level-headed, but my younger cousin was a bit more hesitant. We didn't bring a flashlight because it wasn't pitch dark yet, and we could see enough to not die. We were walking through the paths for about five minutes and could barely see the fire through the trees when we decided to turn. In the middle of the path was a large dog-like creature, hunched over with its front hands an inch from the ground. What I remember most was how its eyes were so bright white, and it was humanoid dog-shaped with a human-like head but a dog-like body, but human hands and feet. It looked right at us, and I know I was paralyzed with fear as it dashed away the opposite way from us, towards a creek that ran through the yard. Eventually, my cousin and I screamed, bloody murder, and the other cousins and my grandma ran to us. I don't remember how much here, because I was really disoriented and I couldn't think properly, but I did wake up in bed, so I assumed that I was brought up to the house. 
All the kids slept in the basement in a big room with sliding glass doors to the outside, as the room was on the side that wasn't underground. My bed was pressed against a big glass window, and I could see my cousins playing outside down below. The house is in Michigan, so it gets slightly chilly, even in the end of August, and there was a slight breeze, so I put on a jacket and ran to join them outside, skipping breakfast, not wanting to miss out on anything fun. When I got down, I could tell they weren't playing, but rather running to get my grandma. Her dogs, both of them, were dead, ripped up. That night, we went to bed early. I woke up at maybe two in the morning because I felt something hit my head. My cousins were all sitting on the double bed opposite me, on the other side of the room. There was one bunk bed and two double beds. The double beds for me and my 14-year-old cousin. They were being quiet and staring at me. The 13-year-old nodded his head toward the window. I froze. They all looked afraid. I turned my head slightly to the side and I saw a really messed up looking face pressed to the window with gaping eyes looking down at me. I screamed so loud and it bolted. My grandma called the police after and I told her what happened and they found nothing. I went home after that and I've never been there during the night again. That was from Anonymous on cultnation.com. Wendigo Encounter I've been debating on sharing this story with anyone outside of my small circle of people that were there, but I want to share my experience in hopes that it saves someone's life or to give understanding of what someone else has experienced. Late fall 2010 in northern Canada, I went deep into the wilderness with my father and my eldest brother to hunt for moose. We left in the early morning, just before sunrise, trying to cover as much distance as possible before nightfall. We traveled, winding rivers, and had to repeatedly portage over rapids all day. We decided to set up camp just over halfway to our destination. My father figured that we'd make the rest of the journey tomorrow. Well... When everyone bedded down for the night, I decided to go grab some firewood and relieve myself down by the bank of the river, just out of reach of the light from the campfire. Out from the tree line, about 15 yards away, I could hear rustling, rustling in the bushes. I watched the area where I heard the noise and focused on that spot. I felt kind of funny, dizzy, lightheaded, and I could smell this putrid stink like old milk or rotten food. Then I saw the trees start to morph and move ever so slightly and began to take the shape of a head and slight facial features. My eyes began to adjust to the darkness and along the tree line I could hear this voice coming from there. I recognized it. The voice sounded like one of my relatives who had recently passed. The face took shape of my relative. Hello, they said. I've missed you. Come see me. I smiled and stepped forward a bit, but stopped to analyze the situation. My relative's face stopped smiling and became emotionless. The skin began to turn pale and peel away. Chunks of flesh from their cheeks began to fall away, and I felt shock and fear overwhelm my body. I couldn't make sense of it all, so I started to back away and make my way to camp. I didn't realize at the time that I'd been walking towards the voice and I was further, further away from the firelight. The voice became angry and began shouting at me to come here. So I turned to run away, but as I looked back one more time, I saw the most disgusting thing I had ever seen. 
It was rotting flesh on gnawed bone, caved-in eyes, and a hollow chest cavity. This humanoid creature was tall and super thin. I ran as fast as I could, trying to yell for help, but the fear had made my voice quiet and raspy. I ran along the riverbank, and I could hear the heavy breaths and the stomping feet from this thing right behind me. I made it on top of, onto the top of the river bank, but it grabbed a hold of my leg as I jumped up. I gripped and tore the grass, trying to lift myself, and yelled as loud as I could. Then finally, my voice came back, and I yelled that someone has my leg. My brother woke up and ran over to where I was. Then he pulled me up and took me over to the fire. I was terrified, trying to explain what I saw, and that it looked like my relative, but not. I was trying to convince them that I wasn't seeing things, but my brother nodded his head and said, I saw it too. I know. That solidified it. He acknowledged that it was real. We stayed up all night after that, rifles loaded and close by. We packed up when the sun was coming up and went back home. We haven't shared that story with anyone out of fear of being labeled as crazy or liars. I've had nightmares and couldn't sleep for months afterwards. I would see things, dark figures looking into my window or hear whispers when I was walking home at night. Eventually, I was seeing this dark figure daily. I went to medicine men or shaman for help, but I've learned that the ceremonies only relieve temporarily. Friends have given me everything from protection pouches to certain crystals. I found out that there's a strong possibility that I encountered a wendigo. I learned that if you encounter one and survive, it attaches itself to you like a parasite. I learned that it could only do this if it touches you, which it did. Ever since that night, I've been on edge when I enter any forest or wooded area, which sucks because I love being outdoors, hunting, and in nature. Now I always feel like I need to keep any, keep my back against something when I'm out in the wild. Anyway, make your own conclusions about this. I've paid a price for being an ignorant child to the stories of the old. They are real. I can attest to that. Be safe, everyone. And that was from Bacon Beatdown from Reddit. Wow, that was a spooky story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the end of our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did, and I hope you can sleep after this. That was kind of creepy. Let me know in the poll attached to this episode what you think the fandom should be called. That's so weird, saying fandom in connection to me. Uh, Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter and send me an email at legendslorelarsonypod at gmail.com. If you have a show suggestion, a future topic for me to cover, or if you just want to tell me how you think I'm doing with the show, make sure to uh, leave a rating and review uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you again in two weeks. Stay legendary.